and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be like those in this parable who hear the word and by your Holy Spirit understand it and that we would allow your word to be deeply planted in our minds and in our hearts that it might prove fruitful for your kingdom and for your glory. We come as a hungry and needy people this morning and we ask you, God, uh, to feed us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to preach on our passage from the book of Romans, Romans uh, chapter 8, and actually we'll be in Romans chapter 8 for the next several weeks, so I just encourage you in your own time at home to delve into Romans 8, to kind of read through it this week, read through it a couple times this week, and, and get familiar with some of the themes of Romans 8, and uh, maybe some questions that you have about Romans 8, and send those to me if you want. Pastor B. Wagner at gmail.com, and um, so that we can begin as a, as a community delving into this very rich chapter together, read it along together, meditate on it, and think about it together. But Romans 8 starts with this wonderful, life-giving verse, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is just a freeing word of grace. But to really appreciate the beginning of Romans 8, you have to appreciate what he describes at the end of Romans 7. And we read this last week. You remember where he's talking about his struggle. He says in Romans 7, uh, 19, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. There's good, I know that I should do it, but then I end up doing the bad, which I don't want to do. Or verse 21 of of Romans 7, again, he's describing this struggle. So I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I, uh, I want to do right, evil is right there at hand. So Paul is describing this inner conflict, this struggle with sin, his, his failure to live up to what he knows is right. And then the shame and the guilt that results from that. I just wonder if anybody here can relate to that struggle. Why is it that right after I tell my kids, stop fighting, stop saying unkind things to one another, be patient, right after I say those kinds of things, if they don't obey, then I get impatient and angry and can say unkind things. No, I don't say amen. I see a smile on here. The good that I do, I don't do. I don't live up to my own standards, much less to God's standards of righteousness. And so what are we to do about that as Christians? Well, that's what Romans 8 is all about, especially the beginning of this section of Scripture. And what Paul says that we should do is remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. In Him, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
No condemnation. That's legal language. This is the language, this is the terminology of the courtroom. To be condemned means that a judge, after an investigation, has found you guilty, has found you to be a lawbreaker. But Paul says if you're in Christ, when God judges you, when God investigates you, the verdict will be no condemnation, no guilt. You're acquitted. And the question is, how can that possibly be? Because, again, he's admitting in in Romans chapter 7 at the end that he doesn't do what's right. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have to admit that, don't we? That we we are breakers of God's law. In our liturgy, at the beginning of the service, we always give the summary of the law, Jesus' summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want to boil the whole law down to this? or down to something, Jesus says, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. And if we take that seriously, we have to admit that none of us keep that law perfectly. And so how is it that when God looks at us, we're not condemned? How is it that a Christian is not condemned? Well, Paul tells us how in these next verses. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul uses the word law here to mean a principle or a power. And what he's saying is that if you're in Christ, you're no longer in the realm where sin and death have absolute power over you. Instead, you're in the realm of the Holy Spirit which is the realm of life. You've been transferred out of one jurisdiction where sin and death are in charge to another jurisdiction where life, God's life, God's life-giving spirit is in charge. So you've been taken out of one realm into another realm, out of sin, out of death, into the realm of the spirit, which is life-giving. And then he explains how, how, that, how that is possible, how we're transferred out of that one realm, that one jurisdiction, into a new jurisdiction. And he explains that in verse 3. Uh, these verses build on each other. They're related to each other, kind of like stair steps. We're building here. And now he explains how this transfer takes place. For God has done what the law, verse 3, weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Look at that text. Let's look at this verse and just kind of unpack it carefully because this verse is really, I think, the summary of the gospel. I mean, it's, it doesn't say everything that the gospel says, but it says some very essential things here. And, and, and this is a good verse to just understand and to know and, and to reflect on and to share with other people who are asking maybe, what is Christianity all about? I think this is a pretty good place to point them to, to get the conversation conversation started so let's just unpack a little bit for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do there he's talking about the Old Testament law the Mosaic law Um, the law was good God is the one who gave the Mosaic law God is the one who gave the Old Testament laws and so it's good but our flesh is weak When he uses the word flesh here, he's talking about sinful nature, human nature. 
And so the law is good, God's law is good, but we're bad. We're not able to keep the law of God perfectly. God's law shows us the the way to live righteously, and it's a path that we're to pursue, but we're not able to do that perfectly. So the law itself is not able to make us righteous in the eyes of God. In fact, what the law does, if you take the law of God seriously, is it leads to this sense that he's describing in Romans 7, the sense of condemnation because of the struggle. I don't do what the law asks me to do, even though I want to do it. So God has done something. So we're not able to do it, but God has done something. What has he done? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the incarnation. That's the Christmas message. God sent his son. Incarnate Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Jesus Himself was not sinful, but He took on human nature. So that's the incarnation. And then we have the description of Good Friday. For sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. This is the work of the cross. That, that, That little phrase, for sin, is Paul's... Shorthand for saying a sin offering. In fact, some translations translate translate it exactly that way. God sent his son into this world for sin. Why did Jesus come? To deal with sin. And how did he deal with it? As a sin offering on the cross. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements might be fulfilled in us. Here is how God, the righteous judge, saves us from condemnation. On the cross, Jesus willingly takes our sin. He offers himself for our sin willingly. At the cross, God, the righteous judge, pronounces the judgment on sin, which is death and separation from his presence. Jesus on the cross experiences that for us. By God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences God-forsakenness in our place so that we don't have to. And that is how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how it works. That's what God has done in order to set us free from condemnation. And really, really we, we, I don't think, I mean, I know this is Christianity 101 for many of us, but I don't think we ever graduate from this. We, we always need to remember this truth and refresh ourselves in the truth that this is what God has done to set us free from condemnation. Something happened to me this week. In fact, on Friday, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you about this. But Mike Jorgensen said this would be a good sermon illustration. So I'm blaming you, Mike, on this. I had another sermon illustration, but this was actually really good for what I'm trying to get across. (laughs) I was meeting Mike uh, for lunch, and somebody else was meeting Carlos for lunch, Mike and Carlos for lunch on Friday. And I was running a little late, and I was in a neighborhood I'm not really familiar with, and... and, and, uh, Again, I'm, I'm running late. I'm kind of distracted. I'm looking at my GPS. And all of a sudden behind me, I see these beautiful bright lights. Surprise. And so I pull over, and the officer comes up to me, this female officer, and, and, I, and, I, and I try to be as polite as possible. said, well, you know, what happened back there, ma'am? And she said, well, I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you how fast I was going. She said, this is 20 miles per hour here. I didn't know the speed limit. She said, you were going 42 and a 20. So at that point, I knew I was done for, right? I, I tried to 
I try to excuse myself. I said, oh, I'm running late. I'm not familiar with the, the area. You know, that's what happens when the law confronts us. We want to give excuses. God, I'm not as bad as this person over here. You know, we start making excuses. That's what I was doing. I was making excuses, but I knew, I knew that I was sunk. And so um, she said those dread words, can I have your license and insurance, please? So I give her that. She goes back to the car. And then here's the thing. It's just a couple minutes after that. She comes back and she hands me my license and insurance and, and I'm expecting the ticket next. And she says, guess what? This is your lucky day. I've got something more important to do. And she turns her siren on and goes blazing off to somewhere else. And I hear these other sirens in the neighborhood. There must have been a, a, a crime or something that happened in that neighborhood. I was, I was set free. <laughs> what a relief. I deserved a ticket. I deserved punishment. I had broken the law, but I was let go. God's law says, you're busted. But God sets us free. Now, my experience isn't at all exact analogy, is it? What God has done on the cross. Because God doesn't just say, I'm going to overlook your sin because I've got more important sins to deal with. God doesn't do that. We do that. Sometimes we say, well, I'm not as bad as a murderer or an adulterer or a theft, a, a, a thief. And God doesn't say, God isn't arbitrary. God is pure. He's holy. God cares about what's going on in our hearts. He cares about the hatred that's in our heart that leads to murder. He cares about the lust that's in our heart that leads to adultery. He cares about the greed and the coveting that leads to people stealing and lying and covering. God is holy and righteous and pure, and He's not going to compromise His holiness. But because He loves us, He finds a way for His justice to be satisfied. And he does that on the cross. That's why there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So remember that. Remember that when you're tempted to think that I've blown it too many times with God and God can't use me or I can't get close to God's presence because of my sin, what I've done in the past, it's just for the pastor or the priest to get close to God or to know Him in a deep and intimate way. No, there's no condemnation in Christ. If you're in Christ, God can use you. You can know God. Or remember that when you're tempted to try to atone for your own sin and guilt. Or when you're struggling with the same sins and you're tempted to throw in the towel and you, and you, and you say, you know what, this Christian life isn't working for me. In Him, in Christ, you're free from guilt before God. And that is the good news of the Gospel. Now, some people take this teaching and say, great, terrific, I'm free, there's no condemnation, now I'm going to live however I want to live. But that's not Paul's teaching. Yes, you're free from condemnation, but in this text, it's very clear, you're free for a new life, to live a different kind of life, to live a life in the Spirit. Paul reminds Christians not only to look back at Christ's work on the cross where we receive pardon, but he also wants Christians to remember that now they have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables you to live a new life, not a life of sinless perfection, but a life of increasing holiness. A life of increasing Christ-likeness. The Spirit of Christ that dwells in you will produce fruit in your life. Christ-likeness. In this passage of Scripture, Paul talks about two ways to, to walk. Two directions of life. He, he, he says you can live in the Spirit. Somebody can live in the Spirit or somebody can live in the flesh. And if you're in Christ, you are already transferred to the realm of the Spirit. So walk in the Spirit. Now, by the flesh, he doesn't mean the body, like flesh and bones, but he means our sinful nature. To live in the flesh is to live without really reference to God. 
To live in the flesh is, with, is to live without caring about what God cares about. The mind that is set on the flesh, he says in verse 7, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Hostile to God. To live in the flesh is to think that all that there is in life, all that matters is this life, pleasure or money or career. But Paul says, if your mind is set on the flesh, verse 6, that leads to death. If that's the path you're pursuing in your life, because I'm living only for this life, without reference to God, that leads to death. And I just wonder if any of us need any convincing this morning that to live a life according to the flesh, without thought for God or reference to Him, to live for selfish desire, do we need any convincing that that really does lead to death? We see examples of that all the time, I think. It's the stuff of our, of our news. It's the stuff of headlines. This week I heard about a, a Google executive. Have you, did you hear this story? A Google executive who was found dead on his yacht. And uh, after some investigation, they found out that, that he was dead from a heroin overdose given to him by an adult escort. A married man. I think he's a father of five. This great tragedy. He had everything that the world says... This is what you need to be happy, to be free, to be fulfilled. But he wasn't free. He was in bondage to the things of the flesh. That's an extreme example. But to live in the flesh, to set the mind on the flesh, leads to death. Leads to the death of marriages. Leads to the death of families. Leads to the death of institutions, of churches, of whole cultures. But the greatest form of death is spiritual death, which is separation from the presence of God. But Paul talks here about another way to walk, another way to live, that we've been set free if you're in Christ. And that is to live a life of the Spirit. And he says, life in the Spirit, or to walk in the Spirit and to set the mind on the things of the Spirit, gives life and peace. To set the mind on the things of the Spirit is to set the mind on the things of God, to live for God, to live in a relationship to God, to have a life of prayer, to let the Word of God, as Jesus speaks about in our parable this morning, to let the Word of God get planted in our life and bear fruit, that's to live in the Spirit. And so, just in conclusion, we're, we're all on a path. We're all walking in one direction or another. What path are you on? There's a story from the early church, uh, the 4th century. It comes from the 4th century. One of the desert fathers from Egypt is visiting this woman who's a spiritual recluse. She shut herself in with God. And this monk from Egypt comes to her, this recluse, and he says, why are you sitting here? And she says, I'm not sitting here. I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey. And that's true of all of us. We're all on a journey. We're spiritually on the move. We're being formed by what's going on in our mind. And we're on a journey out of time into eternity. And the question is, where are you headed? What are you allowing to form your mind and your thinking? The spirit or the flesh? We've been set free if you're in Christ for life in the spirit. Perhaps there's somebody here who's not a Christian, who's not in Christ. You've not trusted Christ with your life. You've not looked to Him for forgiveness or new life. Your mind is set on the things of the flesh. Will you heed the warning that Paul is giving here? That this is a path of destruction, of condemnation. 
You deserve the ticket. You deserve the punishment, just like I do. But God has made a way to put you on a different path through Jesus Christ. Christian, remember that you've been set free by Christ. Remember what He's done for you. Remember in your struggle against sin, when the guilt and the shame and the condemnation comes, remember to look to the cross. Robert Murray McChain said, for every look at your sinful self, take ten looks at the cross of Christ. Remember that you've been set free for life in the Spirit. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the values of the flesh. Holiness leads to wholeness in your life. Walk the path, Christian, that God has set you on. Remember this truth as you walk this path and as you stumble along the path. In Him. It's a good place to be. In Him. There's no condemnation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that You will uh, take these truths We're just beginning to meditate on uh, from Romans 8. Um, Take these truths and plant them deeply into our hearts and minds. Pray that we would all examine which direction we're walking in life. Pray especially maybe for the the person who's here who's, who's distant from you, Christ, or falling away or becoming complacent, that you would reinvigorate that person through the good news of the gospel. That there's no condemnation that we can live a life of wholeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for, for people who may be here who, who are not sure if they're in Christ, that they would put their trust in you. Call all of us to a deeper faith and trust in you and a closer walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.